Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey guys, welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. We're in for a special treat here today because we have another podcast host that I'm interviewing and I'm looking forward to this because I've been wanting to talk to Kevin for a long time. He's got a very good cash flow, real estate investing for cash flow podcast. And a lot of you guys know him. His name is Kevin Bupp. But did I pronounce your name right, Kevin? I forgot to ask you that. Before. No, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, no. good. <laughs> All right. So I want to let you guys know too, real quick, that this podcast is brought to you by, that's right, my book, Wholesaling Lease Options. You can get my book. This is how I quit my job back in 2009, flipping lease options. And I've been saying this for a while now, that as the market's starting to slow down a little bit, uh, it's more important than ever, I think, to understand creative real estate investing, how to buy and sell properties creatively. And lease options are my favorite creative strategy to buy and sell properties because I believe it takes out a lot of the risk. And uh, if you want more information about that, I wrote about it in my book, Wholesaling Lease Options. It takes just a couple hours, three hours max to read. I've been getting great feedback from it. You cannot get it on Amazon. You can only get it if you go to wlobook.com, wlobook.com. I printed uh, several hundred, a thousand, I don't know, of them, and I'm going to give it to you for free. You just got to pay the shipping and handling. And I'll send you the book. It's going to be a real good one. And plus, sneak peek, I'm coming out with a new one. A lot of you guys maybe remember, maybe don't. I wrote a book, boy, about four years ago called Brilliant at the Basics. And I'm going to be updating it. And I'm going to be releasing that book hopefully in February or March. So just stay tuned for that. I'm excited about it. I'm updating the whole thing. And um, I think it's more important than ever in this market as things are changing that you guys understand the simple basic things and don't try to complicate it. And I think I have a good feeling we're going to be talking about those simple basic things with Kevin uh, on this podcast. So one more thing, guys, uh, leave a review on this podcast. If you like the show, I appreciate the reviews. It's kind of like a tip jar for podcasters. And I'm looking at Kevin's podcast here and he has 456 reviews. Are you ready for this, Kevin? And I have, oh, 463. Oh, <laughs> and I've got one other podcast, Joe. I've got oh, a that and it's got like 600 reviews. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But the reviews are important for guys like me and Kevin, guys. We want to know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. What other things do you want us to talk about? What other things do you, um, are we talking too much about? Like, you know, hey, you just need to chill on this, on this topic. I've had really great constructive criticism and feedback on my podcast over the years since I've been doing it since 2011. And uh, I've, I've changed a lot of things. I've made it better, I hope. And your feedback is what does that. It's kind of the fuel that feeds us. And we really appreciate you leaving reviews. So go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review there. You can also leave us a review. You can leave me a review on Stitcher. And uh, what's another podcast 
place they can leave reviews. Do you have another one, Kevin? It's pretty much yeah. iTunes and Stitcher, isn't it? Yeah, you know, they're, they're, I don't know if SoundCloud or, or Google Play, if you can leave reviews there. I know that no. uh, all, yeah, I know that we all probably host there, but I'm not sure if we can leave reviews there. So I yeah. think it might be iTunes and Stitcher. Okay, well, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> all right, Kevin, welcome to the show. Guys, this is Kevin Bupp. He has the popular podcast, Real Estate Investing for Cash Flow. I love that name. You've been doing it for quite a while, Kevin, haven't you? I have, as you have, Joe, as well. So I think we're, we're one of the uh, the pioneers of the podcast space. But now the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, uh, I've been doing for uh, just over five years now. So nice. Um, yeah, it's been now a lot of fun. What's your other podcast? Do you really have two? Yeah, I started a, a mobile home park investing podcast, which is the niche that we've uh, we've focused in for the past six years. And I started that one, I believe that's going on two and a half to three years. I forget the exact start date. So uh, most of the time, that's a weekly show. I miss them here and there. But the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast has always been a weekly show and uh, we stay very consistent with that. Nice. You got a lot of great guests on there, but you also teach a lot of stuff, which is amazing. And I want to I want to ask you some questions about your story, Kevin, and kind of how you got started in real estate. Um, but if somebody just listening to this right now wants to go find your podcast or your website, it's called Real Estate Investing for Cash Flow, and you can just search for that in iTunes. What What's the name of your other mobile home podcast? It's called the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. Nice. <laughs> I, I try to keep it nice and simple. The Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast, and. Um, Mobile home park. I'm looking that up right now. Oh, there it is. It's right next to you. Yeah. Okay. I see it. And you do, you have 618 reviews. We need to talk. Like, how do you get so many reviews? <laughs> and I promise you, they're not from like Fiverr or anyone in the Philippines. They're, like, <laughs> they're real people. <laughs> yeah. Mine are too. I have never yeah. done that. But you know what? I, I might have, when I first started my podcast in 2011, I think I did buy five reviews. I'm embarrassed to admit that and I, maybe I shouldn't, but that was back in 2011 and I wanted to just get it started. And I did buy, I'm embarrassed to admit that five reviews in 2011, but I've not done any since I swear. But yeah, you've got, wow, you got some really good five-star reviews. This is a, a podcast that you guys need to pay a lot of attention to. And you got a lot of recent ones. Nice. Okay. Yeah, it, it seems like the mobile home park one gets more, um, uh, you know, more consecutive reviews. And then the, the other one kind of goes through little spurts, you know, where we'll mm. get a couple of reviews in a month and then won't see any for a number of months. And, you know, I, I, I don't, I probably don't ask for them as much as I used to either. Maybe that's why they've kind of slowed down a little bit, but now it's, um, reviews definitely help guys. Like Joe had said, I mean, it, it, what I try to encourage folks to do is like, tell me, just like you said, let me know what you want to hear, you know, mm-hmm. help, help guide us on the information that you want us to bring onto this, onto our podcast. So in any event, the reviews are very, very helpful. Yes. We appreciate that guys. All right. It's not not just an ego thing, right, Joe? (laughs) Well, it kind of is, (laughs) but uh, it it is helpful though, too, because we want to know what you don't like and what you do like and, and good feedback helps us make the show better for you. So Kevin, you, um, where do you live? Where are you from? Well, where I'm from is uh, Pennsylvania. So I was born and raised in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is, for those that don't know, it's, it is the capital, but it is a very small, very small city in central Pennsylvania. But I've been in Florida in the Tampa Bay area since 2002, and uh, I currently reside in, in Clearwater, Florida. So over on the west coast of Florida. Cool. Mm-hmm. And um, when did you get started in real estate? Can you give us a little bit of your background? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I, I kind of, uh, I guess, uh, luckily happened into real estate. It kind of found me. I didn't find it, and um, and so I'm very grateful and, and blessed that 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 part of my life occurred uh, because I don't know what I'd be doing today, Joe, if, if real estate hadn't found me. Yeah. Uh, I was I graduated high school. Was you know I I wasn't overly studious at all, and um, I, I I didn't go away to school like a lot of my friends had. I went to community college. I came from a very blue collar family, so they didn't have money to to kind of waste and. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I didn't want to go wasting my parents' money away at university, just partying, which is probably what I would have done. And so I, I basically stuck to the course at a local community college. And uh, about a year into school, I uh, had started dating a girl and, and, and basically her mother was dating a guy. And I met this guy that her mother was dating and he happened to be a local real estate investor. And uh, really long story short, I you know became friends with him and kind of saw the lifestyle he was living. And he had a lot of flexibility, drove a really nice car and just seemed to have it all together. And, and that, that was intriguing to me. And um, you know, I, I think maybe in, in me looking back, he probably saw this day kid with no direction in life and, and not really knowing what I wanted to do. He um, he took it upon himself to invite me to a uh, a, a boot camp, a real estate boot camp uh, that was hosted by Ron Legrand, who I think is still around. I don't know oh, if he's still he teaching or not. Yeah, um, he's still traveling a lot too. What year was this? Ah, uh, gosh, this was two thousand. Okay. Yeah, 2000 era. Um, and uh, that was down in Philadelphia. It was a fix and flip boot camp. And uh, he invited me to go with him. I didn't know what that meant, what it was all about. I'd never read a real estate book before, but I saw his lifestyle. He seemed like he, again, he had it all put together and uh, really enjoyed life and enjoyed, you know, the cash flow that uh, that his properties threw off. He was he was mostly a buy and hold investor, uh, small, mm-hmm. uh, you know, single family, small multifamily properties. And so I went to this, this three-day event with him and uh, I, again, I, I was overwhelmed. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And, and I, what I did do is I met a lot of people there that I didn't feel were much smarter than I was. I mean, they had, obviously they had much more real estate knowledge, but it's only due to time, right? In, in the business. And so I left that event, uh, meeting a lot of great people, uh, just, um, you know, seeing a lot of opportunity and, and essentially asked David, David, I, what can I do to help you in your business? Like, I want to learn this. I'm not going to try to go at this alone. I, I just, I didn't have much money. I was young. I was naive. I was everything, but I'm willing to help you in my free time between tending bar and going to school. How can I help you in your business so that I can learn what you're doing? And, and that's what happened. He agreed to it. Again, we were kind of friends already. We got along really well. And so every, you know, every uh, minute and hour in between classes and, you know, uh, my part-time bartending job, I would meet him at his office or meet him out in the field and, you know, help him with uh, contracts, meet with brokers, contractors, basically do the busy work um, Mm -hmm. and and just to be around him and and to learn what it was that he was doing as a real estate investor. And that's what I did. And uh, for a little over a year, followed him around uh, before I bought my very first property, which was a, a rundown row home in, in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, bought it with a, a private a private lender. One of his resources uh, had lent me a majority of the money. The other money came from my bartending money that I had saved up um, and bought that first property, renovated it and flipped it. Uh, you know, made a profit, made a lot of mistakes. You know, probably could have made more, uh, but made some money and did it again, did it again, uh, wholesale, you know, wholesale some properties along the way and uh, just continued on that path. I mean, that was really the start of it. Um, did it for a couple of years up in Pennsylvania, moved to Florida in 02. Just got to get out of the cold. I'm not a big fan of uh, uh, cold, dreary winters and uh-huh. um, moved down to Tampa. And that's where it really all began for me. Just uh, kind of 
uh, it was a new place, new scenery. You know, Tampa was a much larger city to me, a lot more opportunity and started buying up a frenzy, mostly single family properties, uh, some smaller multifamily. And, and it was really buying, uh, I was buying along a business model that David used, which was buy and hold for cash flow. And so most of the things we bought, unless we had to sell or unless we had to build up some additional capital reserves, we would buy, renovate, and then rent. And, and, and I built quite a large rental portfolio, single family properties and started buying more apartment complexes. And fast forward today, also are now buying uh, multi, uh, mobile home parks. So that, that's kind of the condensed version of my story. And there's lots of uh, ebbs and flows in, in between there. Uh, Cause that was way back in 02 when I moved down here to Clearwater. And so now we're obviously in 2019. So it's been a uh, many number of years since I've been a full-time investor and uh, but that's that's it. That's the 10,000 foot view of my story getting into real estate. Again, I kind of happened into it. I, I, find my, I find myself to be very blessed and, and lucky that that occurred and that I met David and that he came into my life and became a mentor. Because again, I wouldn't know where I'd be at today, Joe, if it wasn't for David. Nice. Is, is David still active? Uh, he is, but in a much, uh, much more minimal capacity. He, he's about 25 years older than I. And so he's kind of at a stage of his life where he's just kind of uh, relaxing and enjoying the, the fruits of his labor over the years. So mm-hmm. he is, but he, he's very picky and choosy and uh, just kind of cherry picks things here and there. And doesn't, he, I wouldn't say he's an active investor, although he invests in a few deals a year, but mostly it's enjoying the fruits of his labor and the cash flow from the, the properties that he's acquired. Nice, nice. And where are you holding most of your properties now? Where are you buying or looking? Yeah, so today we only own, other than a few miscellaneous residential properties, we only own mobile home communities. Uh, we're currently uh, in 13 different states. Uh, so there's not one concentrated area. I mean, we, we own uh, some mobile home parks in Florida, Georgia, um, all the way north up to Michigan, uh, New York State, uh, out west to Oklahoma, Kansas, and then a bunch of other miscellaneous states in between. So we're mm-hmm. kind of scattered throughout the country. Have you ever built mobile home parks or are you always just looking for existing ones? You know, it, it, at this point in time, uh, we have not built um, and a couple different reasons. And uh, it's, it's one of the, you know, one of the reasons is, is the reason why we like this niche so much is mobile home parks have a bad rep. And uh, it's only fair that, that some of them do because some people are just slumlords and they, they don't run them properly. They're, you know, their communities are full of just bad folks and uh, drug sex and rock and roll. And it's just, they're unsavory type of individuals and, and municipalities don't like that. And so they've kind of got a bad rep over the years. And so um, it's very difficult to get approval to build a mobile home community. So Joe, if you had a piece of land, uh, I don't know where you're, I think you're based in Missouri, uh, St. Louis uh-huh. area, uh-huh. you would have quite an uphill battle unless it was out in the middle of the country somewhere uh, in Missouri, you'd have quite an uphill battle getting approval from the local municipality to get a new park built. Uh, and so literally over the last 10 years, I believe there was less than 20 new communities that were built throughout the country. So there's a huge barrier to entry there wow. because yeah. municipalities don't want them. And also there's a better use of the land for the most part the tax basis of an apartment complex on the same land mass area is going to be much higher than a mobile home park would be. And so there's better uses for most land that could be used as a mobile home park. And, uh, and so, no, we haven't bought one. And, uh, and, you know, the other big reason is that there's lots of operators as there are in any type of real estate niche that don't do a good job with the operations, right? They're just not good operators. They're not efficient and um, they don't run these things like a business. And so we can, very often find opportunities that are mismanaged and buy them for below replacement cost. And so why build it when we can buy something for below replacement cost and not have to go through the headache of dealing with a municipality and uh, 
you know, and having to develop something from the ground up, which takes many years and lots of money and lots of risk. And so we typically, well, not typically, we always buy existing. That might change in the future, but today we only buy existing mobile home parks. Okay. That's nice. It makes sense. And I wanted to ask you more about why mobile home parks, but um, first I want to ask you the, the crash in 2008 and nine, were you living in Florida or were you still in Pennsylvania? I was. Yep. Yep. I was down here since Oh two. So yep. Okay. I was down here during the crash. What, how did you survive? What happened? I, did, to you? I didn't survive. I physically survived as a human yeah. being, but um, my business did not survive. It, it basically imploded. And um, yeah, it's, it's about as worse as it could, as, as it could possibly get. And uh, uh, you know, I had 122 single family rentals uh, in my portfolio. And then I had a few hundred uh, apartment uh, units as well, apartment doors uh, in my portfolio. And the single family homes are really, um, they took the toll on me and it was, multiple different reasons for that. Uh, we were low leverage, but Florida was, you know, ground zero, uh, you know, within a matter of a year, things that I was at 60% LTV on were upside down. I know a lot of people say that rents never go down. That surely didn't happen here. There was rent concessions out the door. Most places were giving rent concessions or lowering their rents to get tenants in. And so it went from having positive cash flow with my uh, single family investments to essentially being not only upside down on the equity side, but also um, having a major vacancy issue and uh, having to reduce rents and not really even have enough to cover debt service. And so it was a very challenging time. I uh, ultimately had to uh, to let go of most of my properties that I had. I just, I couldn't, couldn't afford to write huge uh, checks every month to make up for the negative cash flow. And it didn't, as we know, the market didn't correct itself in a matter of uh, 12 or 18 months, right? This went on for, for a number of years. And so I, I couldn't sustain. It would have taken me millions upon millions of dollars to support that load to get through it all. And I couldn't, and I just wasn't in that position. So it was not pretty, Joe, at all. Um, but I, I learned a lot. I mean, you know, there times like that, the challenging times in our lives is when you need to kind of step back. And it took me a couple of years to really step back and, and see the positive side of this, of, of what had occurred. But ultimately, it's made me a better investor because of, of, of the challenges that I faced. But I, you know, I know everyone's got the sob story, but I really did. I lost my personal residence. Um, yeah. My bank account got garnished, uh, literally everything. But you know, it's actually negative. My personal bank account got garnished. And uh, it was a very, very challenging time. And um, but we're here now. We've rebuilt stronger and bigger than what we were before. And uh, yeah. things are going wonderful. <laughs> I think it was Walton, Sam Walton, who said, I would never trust anybody in business who hasn't failed at least yeah. a couple times, I think is what he said. So what were some of the lessons you learned from the crash? You know, Which, I think the big one, and this, is, this isn't to, um, you know, to compare one asset type to another, but, you know, I, back then I was single. I wasn't, wasn't married, didn't have kids. And so, and I really enjoy what I, what I did. I enjoy that today. Like I enjoy real estate. And so, I mean, I, you know, a normal work week of 70, 80, 90 hours was the norm. That's just, it, it was my life. And I just remember looking back, it, it took a lot of time and energy, many years to build up that that rental portfolio of you know, buying right and, and buying solid single family homes in good neighborhoods to build up 122 units, right? And, uh, and I look back and I, I think there would have been a much more efficient way to build that portfolio. And it would have been with multifamily properties. You could buy one, you know, one apartment complex, 120 units, one fell swoop, whereas it mm -hmm. took you know, many years to buy 122. So I thought that was one of them. Another one that 
you know, we, I wouldn't say we never got right, but it was just, it was an inefficient part of our business was the management of these single family properties. I mean, we had units that were uh, spread amongst the three different counties. I mean, so just the inefficiencies of leasing and also the repairs and maintenance aspect of that portfolio was uh, was daunting. I mean, I don't know how else to put it, but it was daunting. And I know the big hedge funds have kind of figured that out, um, but I guess maybe we didn't. It's just, uh, it was very capital intensive uh, part of our business, the management property management side. And we never did well when we tried to hand it off to a third party property management company. It just, it never turned out better than what we were doing it. So, you know, the, also the financing aspect, uh, much more challenging, I feel, to get financed on, you know, uh, buying individual homes, you know, really? one after another, after another, after another, then it's just to buy one good commercial opportunity, uh, you know, and there's a sweet spot in commercial real estate, whether it be apartment complexes or mobile home parks. I mean, once you're kind of above the, the two and $3 million um, loan amount, things get a lot easier. It, 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 it sounds counterintuitive, but it's, it's actually much easier to get financing on a, on a cash flowing, you know, higher priced asset than sometimes it is when you're actually at like that, you know, in the single family home space, this is lending, lending situations are different back then than what they are today. Right. And so I just remember it being, uh, being challenged at, at, after the portfolio got to a certain size, because we were literally guaranteeing every single one of these individual loans. Uh, we had to start like getting commercial lines on our, you know, creating little portfolios of our single family properties and getting commercial lines on them in order to keep buying. And, uh, and I remember it just it took a lot of creativity to keep buying these single family properties. Um, and, uh, and I, I just don't feel like we have as much of a challenge today on the commercial side. So, you know, those are some of the big, the big key points there. Um, and again, I think the, looking back, just the scalability, like I, I want to be able to build a business that's sustainable. Um, I know that you're, you're big on family, Joe, as am I, and you're big on traveling. I am as well. I've got two, two young boys, a uh, beautiful wife. I enjoy spending as much time with as, as, as God will give me, right? And I want to build a business that is not only to scale and, and is fun, but also sustainable, you know, that, that I can you know, step away from for two weeks if I want to. And, and I know you do a lot of traveling and uh, I like doing that, but I, I like coming back knowing that the business has supported itself and actually has, has grown, right? Has progressed without me being around. And uh, I feel like me personally, I feel like it's a little bit easier building that scalable business in commercial real estate. So again, this isn't like a compare single family versus you know multifamily or commercial, but those are some of the reasons I feel that you know we've kind of made a big switch and gone down this road. Um, I appreciate you sharing what you did about the crash because you know a lot of people probably, if I were to guess, <laughs> at least three quarters of the people listening to this, if they were doing any kind of real estate, was was really hurt um, yeah. and impacted during the crash. But we've learned a lot of valuable lessons from it, and we've come out ahead stronger out of it, right? Yeah, no, um, no, absolutely, yeah. What What are you doing to, how are you approaching real estate now to protect yourself if that kind of crash happens again? You know, one other, one other point I'll mention about the single family properties, you know, I, I always called myself a cash flow investor even back then, but those single family properties, uh, when you really factor in, you know, uh, you know, capital reserves and, and um, you know, downtime with the turn of the units, they weren't, they weren't cash flow properties like we buy today. Like, Oh, I'm so glad you, know, you brought that up. Yeah. They, they just, you know, and I feel like a lot of folks lie to themselves uh, with, uh, uh. with the operation side and uh, it, it goes back to the inefficiencies. And so what we do differently today, number one, we, well, we Kevin, buy real. To, to touch yeah. on that. 
I've seen this over and over and over again from people that claim they're, they're cash flowing, right? When they're in front of the stage <clears throat> or when you're at a mastermind and you're talking about how many houses they, they own, mm-hmm. you really dig into the numbers, like take away the BS and you dig deep into the numbers. Very few people are making serious cash flow with single family homes. I wish it wasn't true. Yeah. But it is, especially the ones out there, the guys that are buying these $30,000, $50,000 homes in the Midwest or even down South, those property, you can get a spreadsheet to tell you anything you want to tell mm-hmm. you one, right? <laughs> but oh my gosh, I've been, uh, uh, what's the word? Horrified almost, maybe not that strong, but you look at the numbers and it looks like it's cash flowing. But when you take the numbers out for um, the the turnaround time, it's not just vacant one month if you evict a tenant. It's vacant on average two to three months, right? Then people forget about, they may set aside a little bit of money for vacancies and repairs and maintenance, but every year you're going to have to do something like replace the roof, replace the heater, Mm-hmm. The water heater, the furnace, the air conditioner, all of that, right? Absolutely. Then you're going to have the tenant that trashes the property. You got to clean it up. Then when you, if you're using a property manager, not only are you just paying them 10% of the rent, usually you're paying them one month's rent every time they get a new tenant mm-hmm. in the house. Yep. If you look at the numbers, I would argue it's almost impossible to cash flow if you're buying properties under $100,000. Yeah. No, um, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with you. And then yeah. you start getting above that number. Well, then you got to get financing, right? And then you have debt servicing. So you guys, you got to look at this with open eyes and really dig into the numbers. One of my favorite sayings I got from somebody, it's called data, not drama. Give me the data, give me the hard data and really look deep into this. So, okay. So move on. You, yeah. you, were, you were talking about you kind of well, you, small well, you kind of asked the question, like what we do differently today, yes. um, you know, and, and I'll tell you a few different things that we do. Number one, we buy properties that really can be, you know, self-sustaining properties. Like they support themselves. Uh, I'm not saying that we, we didn't lie to ourselves before, but I just, I feel like I'm a smarter investor today. And, um, you know, we always look before we even buy a property, we look for, in fact, I just got done with lunch with, uh, one of, uh, you know, one of my employees, uh, he's a, a recent hire and, uh, he's on our operation side of our business. And, you know, he, he recently got back from a, a property up in North Carolina. We have in contract and, um, and we're talking about that. And, and uh, you know, th- there's some uh, unfortunate things that were exposed during our due diligence about the current owner and, you know, his different holdings in the area and how he might essentially, uh, you know, cause issues for us operating this property if we buy it from him. But anyway, you know, the, the converse, what, what came up in the conversation is that going into a deal, we always look for a way to kill it. Not that we would just want to kill deals to kill deals, but why shouldn't we buy this? Let's talk about why we shouldn't buy these properties. And then once we can filter out all those or you know, not have any of the why we shouldn't, then we can talk about why we should. But let's first talk about why we shouldn't buy this property. And is there enough evidence there that we uncover of why we shouldn't buy it that we don't have to talk anymore about it? Let's just move on to the next one. So that's one thing we do differently. We don't yeah. try to find reasons to buy it. We try to find reasons not to buy it. Hmm. The second that we do is we put them through our own you know, internally made financial stress test. And it's very basic. I make it sound a little bit more formal than what it is, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's our own financial model, but we run different scenarios. You know, just cause you're getting a 5% rate today, as we all know, rates are going to go up. And if you're getting a commercial loan, that has got a five-year balloon. 
what the heck's going to happen if the rates go up two points, right? Which, yeah. which that's pretty drastic in five years, but it could happen, right? What if it goes up to 8%? What if, you know, what if you can't get a cash out in five years like you're planning on? What if your plan was to get cash out and pay your investors back 70% of their money? What if, that, what if you can only get a rate and term refinance in five years? What does that deal look like? Can it pay your, your investors? Can it support itself? Can it pay its debt service? You know, what happens in worst case scenarios to this deal? Can it still survive and what I know can happen, like, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, uh, you'll always be able to get cash out of properties, always be able to do refinances. Well, I can tell you that in 09, 08, 09, and 10, and 11, it was incredibly difficult to get even the nicest deals financed. And if you wanted to go get cash out from a bank on, on a refinance to pull all of your equity back out, chances were very slim, unless it was like an A-class property, right? I mean, it was just very challenging to get debt, new debt good debt on any uh, piece of property. And um, I know that it's inevitable that that will happen again. So we basically run it through multiple scenarios, kind of figure out what the worst case might look like and what the threshold of that property is. And then try to make an educated guess of, do we think it'll ever get that bad? Huh. And, uh, and, and will that deal survive if we feel kind of iffy about it? Um, we pass. I'll give you an example. That's not necessarily from a it has to do with an infrastructure, uh, but also a financial component. There's a, a mobile home park up in New York that we recently backed out on. Financials look great. Thing performed flawlessly. We were picking it up for, was a very good deal based on its current operations. This park, it had a very small section. I think it was a 65 space park. Had a very small section of five homes in the back of the community that were near a creek. That, that section of the park was in a flood area which actually had flooded in the past five years. One home was uh, destroyed. The other ones weren't touched. And so it lost one home. That was a flood, you know, a fl uh, an occurrence that supposedly only happens once every hundred years. But, you know, with global warming, things are changing. I, I, I find it hard to believe that it's not going to happen again for another hundred years. So there's a risk there that if we lost five of those homes, let's just assume we do. There's a good chance of it that that will happen, that we lose those five homes. And, and if we lost them, we wouldn't be able to rebuild mobile homes on those lots. We'd lose the grandfathered zoning of those being mobile home lots. So now we're down to 60 revenue lots, right? That's kind of a kicker. Like that affects the, the future performance of this property. It also affects our end buyer looking at back and saying, wow, this thing was actually damaged in a flood. Even though the rest of these homes aren't in a flood zone, what happens if FEMA rezones or remaps this area, right? Now that's going to be in a flood zone. Anyway, so that was a big one. The other component was half the park was on a brand new master septic system where it had one huge tank, a leach field that fed 30 homes. And then the other half was on individual septic systems that had been there for, you know, since the park was about 40 years. Uh, septic systems can last more than 40 years. I've had challenges with ones that were only 20 years old. It really depends on how they're maintained and how the tenants take care of them. We all know that tenants put things down septic systems that shouldn't be there. And the challenge with this park was if any one of those individual septics on the old side went bad, there was not enough land area to put a new septic field in. The only way to put a new septic field in is if you basically remove the, the mobile home lot next door, so take a revenue unit away and use that empty lot as a new leach field. And so over time, the chances, the time's working against us in that park to whereas leach fields will fail, they will, it's inevitable, they'll fail, we'll essentially have to bastardize one of those lots next door that's currently paying, you know, $400 a month in lot rent. We'll have to make them move and then we'll use that empty lot as a new leach field. So that park could essentially be reduced over the next 10 years. Again, worst case scenario, but it could be reduced by 15 or 20 lots. The deal doesn't make sense at that point in time. And so that was kind of a, that was kind of the worst case scenario, but we weren't even comfortable with like a, 
a very, you know, middle case scenario of, you know, will we lose five septic systems in the next 10 years? Chances are we probably will, or we'll have major issues with them that we'll have to pump them very often, which is also very expensive. Having to pump a system multiple times a year, you eat into your revenue and, um, and it, it, it's, it's basically a, a downward spiral from there. So anyway, that was, you know, that's kind of like we went through multiple stress tests. We had a lot of money wrapped up into this deal. We traveled there. We did um, environmental inspections on it. And we probably had about, I don't know, eight grand wrapped up into this park, eight or eight or nine grand between travel and uh, third party reports and ultimately backed out. You know, uh, it, it made sense today, but we didn't feel that it was the best investment for us and our investors for the long term. And we're long term investors. We if we if we had intended to buy it and flip it in three years, you know, and wanted to gamble and roll the dice, we probably could make money on it. But I, I'm not a gambler. I'm not a speculative buyer. Like I want to I want to know that we're buying something solid that if we intend to hold it and plan to hold it and, and ultimately do hold it for 10 years, we look back and say, wow, that was a great buy. You <laughs> know, I'm yeah. glad we held on to that thing. So anyway, just to give you an example. Now what do you um predict one well, I want to get to that in a minute here. I was writing down some more questions. When you're financing these things, how much if you don't mind me asking, like what percent do you typically have to put down? What percent do you get from private lenders and from banks? Yeah, so we have a our company uh, we have a fund structure and so we we do raise capital from uh, private investors, high net worth individuals and um, we don't do it deal by deal. We typically, like right now, we, we're in the middle of a uh, $20 million raise. Uh, we've already bought, bought eight parks, um, you know, in, in 2018 in this current fund that we're, that we're raising for. And uh, we'll probably buy another seven or eight more. And so we buy multiple communities underneath one umbrella, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, as far as, so, so we do raise capital from private investors to do that. As far as, uh, you know, lending is concerned, uh, we do use debt as well. And it's all across the board. It really depends on the, the location of the community, the size of it, and the condition, just like you know, any other type of real estate. But I'd say if you just you want to take the broad brush uh, stroke and, and approach to it and, and just give a, a general answer would be 70% loan to value, 20-year amortization, five-year balloon, and then you know, rates today in somewhere in like the mid-five range, you know, 5.5, 5.6, something like that. But on the higher quality parks, there's also... Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac debt available. So there is agency debt available. Um, there's also CMBS debt available on the, uh, on the higher loan amounts. So we've done multiple CMBS loans that have had 30-year amortizations, 10-year balloons, sub 5% rates. And this is just you know, in the past you know, six to eight months. And we've also um, just finished up a Fannie loan a couple of weeks ago where we got a, um, I think it was just over 5%, 30-year amortization, 10-year balloon, you know, so the really good long-term, um, long amortization type debt. So there's a little bit of everything available. It just really depends on the park. Hmm. That makes sense. Okay. What kind of, I wanted you to talk about, is it Sunrise Capital? <laughs> That's correct. Yes. That's private fund? Sunrise Capital Investors. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been operating that? So we've been buying parks uh, for six years. I've been buying parks for six years. Um, uh, for the, I guess the first seven or eight parks that I purchased, that I purchased them with my own money, um, not in a fund structure, not raising private capital in the uh, manner that we do today. But Sunrise Capital Investors has been around for a uh, little over three years. So about half the time that we've been buying parks, but we essentially formed it 
as that we're really good at finding deals. So we, we use a lot of the same strategies that uh, the folks in the residential space use, you know, direct mail, cold call, like, cause that's how I was trained. I was trained in the single family space. So I do a lot of what they do, which is kind of out of the box for commercial real estate investors. Most of them don't do that kind of stuff. Um, so we're really good with creating deal flow. And I got to a point where we were essentially, uh, out of bandwidth as far as ca- our own capital is concerned. And so, but we had a, a very uh, good amount of deal flow and we were confident in our ability to get more. And so that's how, that's why we ultimately formed Sunrise Capital Investors so that we could continue capitalizing on great opportunities, you know, share the love with, uh, with our partners on those. So we brought pri- private investors in that wanted to participate in this niche, believe in this industry, you know, believed in us, wanted the returns, but didn't really want to be involved in the day-to-day operations. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And that website, if anybody's interested, I'm looking at it, is sunrisecapitalinvestors.com, right? That's correct. Yes. Cool. Can you talk a little bit about how you find your deals? How, do you go out there and do any direct-to-seller marketing? Mm-hmm. Or is it just referral? Do you knock on doors? How do you guys find your mobile home parks? Yeah, all the above. But I tell you that our, our claim to fame um, is direct mail and cold calling. You know, uh, the, the thing about mobile home parks, and it's unique in that you can't just go buy a list of every mobile home park in the U.S. It doesn't exist. And the reason behind that is a lot of these parks were built back. uh, A lot of times the land that they're on was not valuable land. They were kind of on the outskirts of town. Uh, A lot of the towns didn't even have uh, a zoning ordinance in place. And so a lot of these parks fall into a, a category of, a grandfather status. So like as the town kind of grew around them, now they're, you know, might be within the city limits, but the underlying zoning surely today would not support a mobile home park. So a lot of these things are grandfathered in, but the underlying zoning, you know, we've seen residential, agricultural, uh, general commercial, multifamily. I mean, it's all over the board. So you can't just, you can't just go buy a list of every mobile home park in the U.S. because the aggregate data you get from the county is all over the map, right? And so about five and a half years ago, we started building a uh, mobile home park database of literally how a team of VAs doing it for us, literally wow. using Google Earth, identifying them all wow. on Google Earth. I'm talking like painstaking, <laughs> painstaking work uh, going to individual markets. We researched a couple hundred markets first and then literally visually went in. You can easily identify them visually uh, a park, right? It's pretty easy to kind of pick out wow. a mobile home park aside from an apartment complex. And then we'd go into county records, dig up that information, go into the secretary of state, uh, and then we use a couple of skip tracing services where we can get their cell phone numbers and their home mailing addresses and all that. So we've built this database now of, we've got about 9,000 parks on that database. And there's, of that nine, uh, there's about 50,000 parks in the US. And the 9,000 that we've database are ones that are in markets we'd want to buy in. They're of a certain size and they're of a certain quality. So like, it's a very targeted list. Uh, and we've been growing it over the years. But anyway, we've been direct mailing to that list for, for many years now. We actually have a full-time cold caller uh, in-house in our office that literally that's all she does all day long is outbound dials nice. uh, to these park owners. And, and in addition to that, we use brokers. Uh, you know, we have relationships with, um, with industry, industry brokers. Uh, we have other, uh, you know, people that bring us deals here and there. But, you know, what, what I've found is over the, over the last couple of years, it's been such a competitive space, not just mobile home parks, but just cash flow real estate, right? Apartments are a great example. It's nearly impossible to buy an apartment complex. I don't even care if it's a C minus quality apartment complex for anything better than a six cap. I mean, you're lucky if you can buy something in a six cap that's, you know, 100 plus doors in size. 
same thing really started happening in the mobile home park space. It's really tight. And so you go to a broker, what's happened is the broker obviously is going to put out to the market. Even if he puts out just to his pocket buyer list, there's always going to be, I've always said, there's always going to be someone out there willing to pay more than you or I for it. And so you, you basically get in these bidding wars and you end up paying more than what you want to. And so when we go direct to owner, we typically don't have to deal with that. I mean, we can avoid overpaying for something and not being, you know, in a, a competition with five other buyers that probably are willing to pay a little bit more than we are. So the direct mail and direct to owner marketing has, um, has been wonderful for us. And uh, it's produces about 85% of the things we buy in our current portfolio today. Okay. That makes sense. I like how you're doing the cold calling. That is uh, something very few people are doing. Yeah, you know, if our, if our list was like 50,000 or 100,000, which I know a lot of like the residential guys, like they've got massive mail list or, or you know, uh, contact list, like that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be feasible. Uh, I guess it could be, but um, our list is small enough that we can like literally make, make our way through it in, in less than a year, you know, making those outbound calls. And then we touch them many other ways as well. So they're getting letters from us. They're getting, we do, we just started a quarterly newsletter. Yep. which is just really value add. Like it's literally just a quarterly newsletter, a little bit about our company, a little bit of uh, general articles, a couple articles that are, you know, how to improve their community, how to, you know, generate more revenue from their community, you know, just all value add to them, but just another way to touch them. What are some common fears that people have when it comes to mobile homes? You know, it's beginners, far, it, people that don't understand the business yet. Well, I think it's just the, the, the tenant base. I think everyone, you know, if you've never been in a mobile home park, which I had never been prior to, you know, getting into this niche, but they kind of lump it into one category of like, it's got to be a rough tenant base for people that don't want to pay, you know, drug dealers and just, you know, kind of the scum of the earth. And that's, that does exist, but, um, you know, it's really, it's, it's far from the truth. And so I think that's one of the biggest fears. And I think that basically scares most people away from it. And um, they, you don't know, have, you wanna, they don't have a chance to build up any additional fears because that one scares them away. <laughs> you want to hear something funny? Um, just two days ago, my uncle, well, he's probably mid-60s, he uh, sent me a picture that he took of when he visited our family in Edmonton, Alberta in 1982. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was eight years old at the time. And... Uh, I remember uh, living in this mobile home park. I used to live probably for three to four years in a mobile home park. And mm-hmm. um, I grew up, I mean, my parents were poor, but they were the hardest working parents that uh, I've ever met. And um, I never knew I was poor, mm-hmm. right? We just, my dad worked as a janitor at McDonald's for the long time. And then he started his own janitor business cleaning uh, restaurants and offices and carpets and toilets and whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I grew up in a mobile home park and I was looking at these pictures. He sent me these pictures. And if anybody wants to see them, if you just go to my Facebook page, you'll see some of these pictures. But I couldn't, I look at that trailer thinking, holy smokes, I forgot how small it was. Like this was probably a 750 if that square foot mobile home, I don't know what's the, what's the average size of it. Like a single wide, about a thousand. Okay. So it was about a thousand square feet, two bedrooms, one bath, a little living room, a little kitchen. And, uh, but looking back at that, I, I, I was almost tearing up looking at that picture because we were trailer trash. Right. But at the same time, we kept that trailer really clean. I was looking at some of the interior photos, uh, that we took and, um, we had nice furniture in there. 
my dad has never missed a bill or been late in his entire life on any kind of bill. And uh, we were just really hard working class, blue collar people. And I remember growing up in that mobile home park too, and, and having friends that also lived there and playing with other kids. And, you know, it was, yeah, the, the, the stereotype that it's a bunch of, of um, really bad people <laughs> or, or yeah. poor people living in mobile home parks um, that don't care about uh, things. It's just not true. That's my whole yeah. point. No, absolutely. I, I, like to, I like to use this comparison. Um, you know, you go to any city, anywhere in the U.S., where there's apartment complexes, residential single-family home neighborhoods, mobile home parks, all three of those, you can go to, you can find A-class neighborhoods of, you know, the single-family homes, the apartment complexes, and mobile home parks even. I mean, we've got a couple really high-end mobile home parks that those people actually choose to live there. The homes that they have in there, the mobile homes in the town that they're in actually costs more than a, some of the stick built homes, you know, yeah. some of the builder grade stick built homes. And then you can go to the complete other end of the spectrum in that same town. You can find the scariest apartment complex that is full of just, you know, riffraff and people that you would not want to run into uh, at night, let alone, you know, just any, any time in your life, right? Just bad people. Same thing with single family home neighborhoods or residential neighborhoods. I mean, you got, you know, really rough neighborhoods that are scary. You turn the block and, you know, drive really fast, as fast as you can, lock all the doors. And the same thing is just with mobile home parks. So, I mean, it's really, they all, I don't know why mobile home parks kind of get kicked into their own category, but there's really nice ones that exist. There's, uh, you know, the ones that you're speaking of, which is mostly what we own, which are just good, hardworking folks that um, they're, in, they're in good towns, but th- these folks, they need an affordable place to live, but they want the best for their kids. They want to send their kids to good schools. They're hard workers. They pay their bills on time, but they can't afford a thousand dollar a month apartment unit. And even if they could, a lot of them actually still choose to live in the mobile homes because then they, they get their own yard. They get to have their own, you know, parking pad for their, maybe even a carport for their car. And uh, it's just a little bit more of a freedom than living in an apartment. So there's a number of communities that we own that, um, you know, would, as far as like the pricing is concerned, would be a, the equivalent price on a monthly basis to what like maybe a C-grade apartment complex is in the area. And some of these parks we bought that had vacancies, you know, we would market very heavily to the C-class apartment complexes and we would pull people over, you know, people that want to be a homeowner. We'd for the same price monthly, they could get their own yard and they could literally own that home in a number of, you know, five or seven years. Whereas nice. in the apartment, they're always going to have someone above them, below them on either side and they're never going to own the darn thing. So, yeah, no, there, there, there's nice parks out there and it's, it's unfortunate we've got that stigma, but I think we're, we're, we're slowly changing the industry, Joe. We're working on it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then what kind of advice would you give to beginners? Maybe they have some experience doing single family homes. Maybe they don't. What, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who maybe is interested in mobile homes, you know, doing it themselves or partnering with somebody? Yeah, I mean, as with anything, get educated. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a ton of education on this niche. I mean, pretty much every other real estate niche out there, you could find uh, probably 100 books or more on Amazon. You could find 100 podcasts or more. Uh, mobile home parks, not so much. So there's a few people out there, are, are, you know, myself, and there's a few others that have good information on this this uh, asset class. But I would say start with that. You know, like the mobile home park podcast that we uh, have, I think there's I don't know, 100 and, 110 or so episodes. Uh, a lot of them very granular in nature. Like, you know, there was a number of episodes where we went very deep into our business model, how we build our database, how we identify markets, how we do the actual market research, how we dig into the Secretary of State website, how we skip trace the owners, how we, you know, how we direct mail them. So we go very deep into, uh, into the mechanics of our business. So I would start 
there. It's free. Go listen to it. And, um, you know, it's going to give you a lot of the higher level points that you need to ultimately make the decision of, do I want to continue pursuing this? Does this seem like it could be a good fit for me or should I move on to something else? But that's where I would start. Cool. Very cool. And uh, if people want to get a hold of you, Kevin, they want to reach you, how can they find you? Yeah, the best way is uh, my website, which is kevinbupp.com. Uh, you can surely reach me through there. That also is where I, that's where I host my Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast. Um, and then also our company website, if you want to learn a little bit more about what we're doing, or you can, you can contact me through there, uh, sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. So either one of those two websites, uh, you can get a hold of me. Kevin Bupp is K-E-V-I-N-B-U-P-P.com. And you have some good resources on there. All your podcasts are on there. What are some of the things you talk about on your podcast if somebody's never heard of it before? Yeah, so, so the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, uh, the reason why I started that, I, I've been a listener for a, a podcast for a long time, Joe, way before I started that podcast. And um, what I found is that there weren't, this is back before everyone started a podcast, right? This is like eight, eight years ago, nine years ago. Um, I know you were podcasting then, but not many other yeah. people were. And there weren't, there weren't, a, there weren't any real estate shows, um, podcasts on commercial real estate. You know, anything outside of residential investing, there was not, nothing on apartment investing. There was nothing on uh, any of the other asset classes that kind of fall underneath the commercial umbrella. And that's what my interest was. Like, that's where I was at that point. Uh, in my investing career. And um, I was finding it hard to, you know, get the information out there. And, and so I was like, why don't I start my own? Right. And so it actually had the idea, it took a couple of years, finally jumped on it. And so that's what we do. We basically, you know, about 20% of the shows are, are me covering a specific topic and the other 80% are interviews with very successful commercial real estate investors across many different niches. So anything from self-storage to apartment complexes to assisted living to uh, car washes, laundromats, uh, shopping centers, I mean, you name it, uh, industrial centers. Um, I bring guys on that specialize in those niches that have created business out of those different types of commercial real estate just to expose people to a different world that's out there. You know, I think a lot of people get scared of commercial real estate because they're like, how the heck, what did you expect me to ever buy that $30 million you know, shopping center uh, or buy that you know, marina or the self-storage facility? But a lot of the guys I interview you know, have created you know, a multi-million dollar business if they start just like you and I did, right? Just yeah. taking that action step and, and moving forward. So I try to showcase those and uh, educate folks on those different niches. Nice. You, you mentioned you've been listening to podcasts for a long time. I'm curious, what are some of the other podcasts you listen to? In any I, different kind of industry. I feel ashamed now because I think ever since, at least for the last like three years, I don't find the time to listen to many podcasts anymore. And I tell you the reason, one of the big reasons why too, actually, I don't drive as much anymore as I used to. I used to have a pretty long commute. And I'd spend a lot of time in the car looking at local deals and I don't do that much anymore. And then number two, I get overwhelmed. There's so many out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I search and I find like, you know, eight podcasts on one particular topic. And so, um, Again, I feel ashamed that I am a podcaster and I don't even have one that's like my go-to at this point in time, Joe. So yeah. my apologies. <laughs> well, I have been, I have the same way. I just got rid of a ton of them, but I still have one, two, three, four, five times. I have about 25 podcasts that I subscribe to. And um, what's one of your favorite? Like what's on the top of your list? Russell Brunson has one called Marketing Secrets. Yep. Really good one. I like a podcast. Just looking through them right now. There's a lot. Yeah, of that's what I'm doing. I'm looking through mine to see which ones maybe I'm not thinking of that I listen uh, to. Self-Made Man is a good one hmm. that I like. 
Smart Passive Income. Sometimes I listen to that. James Shramko has one called Super Fast Business that I like. Don Miller, Story Brand. Building a Story Brand is a great mm, podcast. Okay. And let's see here. Tim Ferriss. I listen to a lot of his shows. That's yeah. He's got a good podcast. There's some internet marketing ones like Online Marketing Made Easy I like. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the kind of the non-real estate ones. There's some decent real estate ones that I listen to. The Art of Paid Traffic, uh, The Smartest Guys in Marketing, Perpetual Traffic Podcast. And so you just do a bunch. You just named yeah. like a you named like a year fool for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I could listen to more. I, that's one of the things I miss about having a job. I haven't had a job since 2009, but I miss the commute. Because I would get a lot of audio podcasts, audio books, yeah. to listen to, and, and I just have not had. Me too. Oh, uh, Frank Kern has a good one. Your next million that I've been. Listening. Oh, I didn't know he actually had a podcast. Okay, I'll to, yeah. it's just audio of his videos, but um, yeah, they're actually pretty decent. Mm. Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I could. Um, I know a lot of folks listen to them when they're working out or exercising, and uh, I just I, I can't. I have to listen to music at that point in time. Otherwise, I probably could uh, get you know exercise multiple times a week. I could probably knock out a few hours of uh, audiobooks or podcasts. But uh, about the only time I listen to them is when I'm on an airplane. You know, like those little yeah. you know two hour stints here and there. I'll I'll download some shows or an audiobook and, and knock a and knock it out. But uh, yeah, that's it. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I, I record them and, and, and host them, but <laughs> don't listen to too many anymore. Well, that's probably pretty common. But uh, thanks, Kevin, for being on the show, guys. If you want Kevin more information about Kevin, go check out his podcast, Real Estate Investing for Cash Flow Podcast. And he also has another one called Mobile Home Real Estate Investing. Is that right? Uh, the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. Yes, the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. Check that. In fact, I did a search in iTunes for real estate investing and you have your two podcasts are in the top four under real estate investing. Uh, (laughs) Making magic happen, Joe. (laughs) Yeah. Don't get me started with the rankings in iTunes. I know. Well, if you look at it on a phone, it's differently. I don't know how that works out, but uh, so if you look at a computer, they're in the top four. I think I've got number one spot in real estate investing, but if you look on the phone, it's like number 10 or something like that. So, Which is so weird too, because the new and noteworthy, there's some podcasts on here that have been in new and noteworthy for over two years. Yeah, my good friend Rod Cleef. Uh, he, yes. I, I've been pushing him to get his show started. He'd start like two and a half years ago, and literally, his has been new and noteworthy since he started it. And I literally, he doesn't know how, but it's there. I'm like, it's very interesting. <laughs> Come on, give. There's it, no give secret. It. There's no secret. There's another guy, uh, MC Lobsher, Lobsher, I think, who's been yeah. there forever. Um, and then the what's hot category, I can't figure that out, but. Um, I don't think anyone can, so don't beat yourself <laughs> up over it. <laughs> uh, so good. So guys, you can get more information about Kevin at his podcasts and also kevinbupp.com, B-U-P-P.com, and then Sunrise Capital Investing or Investors, Sunrise Capital. Uh, SunriseCapitalInvestors.com. Yes, and we'll have the links to all of that in the show notes. And if you want to get a hold of Kevin, that's just go to his websites and you'll see some Contact Us pages on there. So thanks a lot, Kevin. Appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you guys. Go check it out at realestateinvestingmastery.com to get the show notes and all that good stuff. And I'm going to be doing transcriptions in 2019. I just made the decision. 
we'll be getting transcripts again. Do you do transcripts, Kevin? Uh, I'm guilty there. No, I do not. And I should be. I yeah. should be. Well, you know, I, some people love it. Some people don't care. It's not cheap, but um, I think I'm going to do it. Why not? Dollar, right. dollar a minute, right? Yeah. I can get 80 <laughs> cents a minute. I can get 80 cents a minute. But um, hey, thanks again, Kevin. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it.